quick one if you'd like to support us on our journey to a thousand please do consider subscribing or following this podcast wherever it is you're listening to this thank you hello hello everybody and welcome to 1000 voices the podcast where we're on a mission to interview 1000 inspirational blackburns and boy do we have an inspirational interview for you today today we spoke with the amazing ria gibbs a teacher and the founder of a community called black teachers connect Ria founded this community after getting into teaching and recognizing that there was a massive lack of diversity and thinking in an entrepreneurial sense, what can she do to help challenge this lack of diversity? So she built this community, a safe space for teachers to get together, to speak, to share, to connect with other like-minded teachers from similar backgrounds to herself. In this interview with Ria, we touch on all sorts of different topics, including her journey as a student and now as a teacher, We speak about exclusions and whether that should take place in schools or not. We touch on whether exams are killing the creativity of the young people that go to school. We speak about the safeguarding of children in schools and whether the schools are doing enough to safeguard their children, particularly in the light of the child Q incident. We touch on labelling theory and so, so, so much more. It was such a diverse interview and an interview I really, really enjoyed. Please do remember to leave us a comment or a review after you finish listening to this, letting us know what you thought about the episode. But that's that for now. So without further ado, this is 1000 Voices and here we have Ria Gibbs. Okay. Hello, hello, Ria. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all good. Thank you very much. And thank you for coming to 1000 Voices. Like, I really appreciate it. When I was looking into your profile and everything that you're about and what you do, like, I was like, so sick and I thought it'd be great to get you on board. So... And I know you've had a long day. <laughs> You're coming straight. Yeah, yeah. Because school day is a long day, but you know I'm so happy to be here. So honestly, thank you for asking me to come onto the platform. It's amazing what you're doing. Yes, it's all good. Anytime, anytime. Before we get into things, for people who might not know who you are and what you're doing, could you give us like a brief introduction to yourself? Yeah. So my name's Ria Gibbs. Um, I am currently a teacher at a girls' school in South London. I teach sociology and criminology to year groups 10 through to 13. Um, I'm also head of year 12 at the moment as well. So that's another layer. So dealing with my year group. And I'm also the founder of Black Teachers Connect. Um, So I founded Black Teachers Connect in 2018 when I started training to teach. And um, it's been a journey ever since. But I'm sure we'll get into all of that. So that's just me in a small nutshell. Cool. Yeah, yeah, we're definitely going to get into it. And this this topic here is something that's close to my heart, education and everything like that in general. Just literally a couple of days ago, so me and my wife, we went out to eat for breakfast and mm-hmm. we just spent like the whole time just talking about education, about school, wow. about our experience, about things we think are right, things we think are wrong. Like, it's a topic that's close to my heart. So I was very excited mm-hmm. to get you on board. So start off with you so with black teachers connect i know you founded it because you wanted like a community of teachers you know when you first Mm -hmm. got into your teaching profession what i'm interested in is looking back at your childhood what was that community like for you did you grow up in like a strong community in your area um so i'm born and raised in croydon um for the people who are listening that are from croydon or south london um and so i think growing up it was an interesting kind of i lived in like a cul-de-sac so i guess people would say it's like an estate so i knew a lot of the people that i lived around and we were like like quite a close-knit community and then when i was at the age of nine i moved to um like within a little bit away from croydon and more into thornton heath um and i would say that 
I've been able to have a close-knit community, but I would definitely say that it's not as close as I want it to be. And I think, unfortunately, we've experienced a lot of trauma in the community that I've been in. So um, when I was, I think I was eight or nine, my brother's best friend got stabbed to death. And I think that's a imprint in my mind of growing up and something that I saw because I remember the morning that my mom took me to where it actually had happened because she wanted to get more details and I can never forget that memory and I think people always think how has that stuck with you and I think definitely I've experienced some trauma in growing up but there's definitely always been that element of a close-knit community but not in always the sense that I want it to be. Yeah, yeah. What do you feel like growing up in a community like that, in an area like that, with all of those things that are happening around you, do you feel like that had an impact on who you are now today? Um, I think it's always pushed me to strive for more um because I think sometimes I have this running joke like oh yeah you know with my with my students or you know missus growing up in the ghetto or whatever but you know like I'm I'm always joking around with them but I do think that it's had an impact on me to strive for better um especially when I went off to university I was like one of the few people in my area that was actually going into higher education it wasn't really a concern for other people so for me especially it's definitely pushed me further to kind of pursue greater things um so definitely I would say that it's had a good impact on me as well yeah yeah it's interesting because one of the previous interview one of the early interviews I've done actually a thousand voices was with this spoken word artist called Rag CV and he spoke about his experience growing up in South London as well so he grew up in mm-hmm. Brixton and then oh, wow. similar similar to yourself so it was like he said he, was, he spoke about the community being like a strong close-knit community but then there's all sorts of stuff happening as well um so it's like you get the strong sense of community but on the flip side you also get all sorts of stuff and then that's all because of you know just conditions and class and classism etc etc all sorts of you know things that play into that but um i guess there's all like pros and cons um to growing up in an area like that right like if you're growing up in another area you're not going to get a strong sense of community maybe growing up in the sticks somewhere but then you ain't going to necessarily just you won't get like the other side of things as well so you know what i'm saying that yeah, it's definitely hard yeah yeah for real for real what was your schooling experience like uh primary school i would say was good um i didn't have that many black teachers i had one black teacher and funnily enough like when i look back at my experience with her we never got along um and i find that really interesting we just never ever got along sometimes i feel like she came from a different walk of life than me and so sometimes i feel like we couldn't connect um then when I went into secondary school um, I went to an all-girls school which is funny because I teach at an all-girls school now um but it was quite difficult for me in the years um 10 and 11 so I think my teachers had a perception of me you know black girl Mm. I wasn't predicted high grades I was predicted 1A and that was in Spanish and for my for the life of me I can't speak Spanish today. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know any Spanish words. And that was the one A I was predicted. And in year 11, you know, um, I was accused of having fights outside of school. I was accused of beating up girls and doing this and doing that. That never happened. I was never there. But my teachers, especially my head of year, she was constantly, constantly getting at me for any small issue. Um, and they wanted to make sure really kind of that they could push me out. But really I had a strong mother and she didn't let that happen and so when I left school I left school with seven A's and I was actually predicted mm. one and so when I got my GCSE results I made that decision I said I can't stay in this place where they undervalue me so much I was so undervalued in my secondary schooling experience I don't think that my teachers actually looked at me and thought 
Rhea's going to be something one day when she gets older. It was just kind of like, I'm going to put you in a box. You know, you're a typical black girl from Croydon. We don't care about you. We don't rate you. You know, you're going to get an A in Spanish. Um, even in maths, for example, I remember when I did really well on a paper, my teacher looked at me and he said to me, did you cheat? And no. that was when I knew, that was when I knew that these people really do not rate me. Like they, they don't care. So my secondary schooling experience was definitely a difficult one. Um, but I knew after that I wanted to go into a college or a sixth form or a space where there were people like me and I felt valued. So I went to SFX, um, which is known to be quite um, a diverse college, sixth form college that is really good for pushing out black excellence. So Tiny Temper is an alumni of that college. And so, you know, um, I managed to have a really good experience in sixth form, but secondary school, no, it wasn't the best for me at all. Yeah, yeah. And with an experience like that then, why did you decide to go into teaching? Like, did you decide in school that you wanted to be a teacher or was that a later thing? Um, Funnily enough, I think in school, I wanted to be a teacher. I think I was always the one kind of telling the class to be quiet or to focus or to get back on track, supporting my friends. And I think... When I got to university, I was a bit like, hmm, I'm not really sure what I want to go into, but I want to create impact. And for a little while, I'd been doing youth work. So every summer I would do youth work from about the age of 15, 16 at the same youth club that I had attended. I started working there um, with the young people. And so when I was in uni, I was still doing that every summer. And so when I left, I thought, do you know what? I definitely want to pursue a career where I can work with young people and I can make an impact. And so you know, four years later, I'm here in the classroom making an impact with young people. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's It's interesting to hear as well, because, like, with school, I feel like a lot of teachers, I feel, anyway, I feel there's some careers you get into where you really need to have a heart for the people you're serving. Them careers, yeah, where you're, like, actively serving people, where like, you can, that's, like, a teacher or whether you're a doctor or you're a politician or whatever, them kind of type of careers, I feel like you really need to care. And I feel a lot of teachers, really? yeah, a lot of teachers get into it and it's just like a nine to five to them they don't really care and they try and make an example so you're talking about your experience there as well yeah where teachers are accusing you of all sorts of things it just sounds like cool they've got it out for you where we want teacher off you and they got it out for you um and they're just trying to prove a point or just trying to prove themselves right so oh yeah it was real it was real it was real until one day they catch yeah. up and be like oh yeah i was right all along it's sort of like i don't know they're just like pushing and projecting stuff onto you you know um, and that's Absolutely. not right because I feel like teachers and people in positions of authority do that to a lot of young people and people can internalize and take that on and then now go away and then do all sorts of whatever but then it's because they've been told throughout the whole youth you're this you're that you're always getting in trouble you're, you're bad you're this you're not smart this that blah 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 um, instead of just telling them more positive things you know yeah, 100% I'd agree. Um, I think teaching, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it. Teaching is a hard profession. It's not easy. Um, it's draining mentally, physically. But I think teachers need to remember what they're doing in a classroom. They're shaping the future of a young person. Um, and all of us seem to be able to remember our schooling experience. It's either something that's very positive for us or something that's very negative. And we often want it to be the latter for our students. We want it to be very positive. So I think it's really important for teachers to recognize the position that they play in the classroom. It's very, it's actually quite a serious role. It's the same as you said for a doctor, a nurse, midwife. It's very serious when you are interacting with young people every day of your life. Definitely. And you mentioned that you wanted to go into teaching because you wanted to make a positive impact in the young people. You've done some youth work as well whilst, you know, on the mm -hmm. side when you was younger. Do you feel like 
in your teaching career so far that you've been able to make the sort of impact that you want to make? 100% I definitely think I've been able to make an impact on our young people that I've worked with. One thing I will say though is that I think this generation is um, under a different type of pressure. They're under a different type of viewpoint of what education actually means. So like when I was in school education was the key, the tool to it all but unfortunately Unfortunately, at the same time, I think our young people, as you may even know, are exposed to a different world. They're exposed to an online world of designer goods and designer clothes and fast money and quick life. And for them, sometimes they can't recognize that investment in themselves of education. So although I think I've been able to make an impact with my students, I know that in other classrooms, there are teachers who are not able to have real one-to-one -one conversations with their students about how they should value their education and how they should really pursue being successful. Um, so definitely there's impact that's been made, but even as myself, I've definitely had an impact on the young black girls I've worked with. The young black boys, I can't say how much of an impact I've had. You know, I'm not a black male. I can only impact them so much. And it's a shame because we don't see as many black men teaching that they don't have those role models in the classroom as well. Um, but I definitely would say I've had a massive impact. You know, I've had students come back um, to me that have gone off to university, they've gone off to college, they're doing really well for themselves. I even saw one of my ex-students the other day, you know, crazy because I literally went out to get something to eat and she was working in the restaurant and you know she was looking at me in this type of way and I was thinking your face is just too familiar why have I forgotten your face like your name I why can't I put the name to it was my ex-student and you know I taught when she was in year 10 she's in sixth form now and I'm like it's crazy like it's really crazy but definitely I've had an impact on them um, and I hope to continue to do so both with students and teachers. That's real cool. And I ask about the impact side of things as well, because um, I know on an individual level, of course, you'll teach, you can have an impact on the students. But I guess on an institutional level, like if you felt like you're being stifled in any way, maybe by the school, maybe by just the way the system set up, anything like that, that's maybe, you know, hampering you in trying to deliver the impact you want to deliver. Um, I definitely think so to an extent. And so obviously the people that are listening that know me, um, in about June, I'll probably like make an announcement about what I'm doing to pursue that outside of school. But I think for black teachers as well, it's very difficult to make the changes you want to make with the type of institution that we see today. And so um, it's a hard one because you want to make sure that we are focusing on giving the best provision to all students. But then at the same time, our black students, ethnic minority students are coming from lower socioeconomic backgrounds they're coming from homes where they're dealing with particular things and so on an institutional level there's a lot of focus at the moment on other issues and not so much the race issue now in 20 2020 when we had mm. George Floyd and we had everything that was going on you know it was this big thing by schools you know I want to change the curriculums I want to have more black teachers but you know what it's 2022 and a lot of schools have fallen silent and when you bring these issues back up, you know, it's almost like you are shaking a hornet's nest, like you need to be quiet. There's no need to kind of discuss those issues at the moment. That's not the focus. And schools are very much institutionalized, privatized spaces where the focus is on churning out good grades and good offset reports. The rapport and the relationship and the mentality of building up our students is being lost in the midst of ticks 
tick box um, admin like activities, whereas we're not focusing on on building up our young people to what they should actually be. So I would say on some level as an as an institution school, it does hinder my work, but we have to keep pushing those barriers. And it's about building those connections and finding true allies who are willing to invest in that work. So I've worked with a range of head teachers, senior leaders that are ready to change their schools. But when they're not ready, you can't go in and um, execute any work because it's just not going to come to fruition. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And on the student side of things, so what you hearing? What do you hear from the students with regards to the education system? Are they? Do you feel like um, it's serving them the way it needs to serve them? And are you hearing that it needs to change to better serve the students? I can talk for the delivery of my subject. And so I like to big up my subject quite a lot because sociology to me is a is a massive toolkit for the world. And I think I did sociology as a degree and at A-level, I never got to do it at GCSE, but I think I'm giving my students a different lens on the world and I'm able to kind of give them different ideas that they can carry with themselves for the rest of their lives. But I think what I hear from some of my students is that we aren't teaching them life skills. I left school, I didn't know what a mortgage was. I didn't know what a credit card was. I didn't know what a debit card was. Um, I didn't know what it meant to have student finance when I was leaving school. I didn't know what a university kind of journey could look like. And so in some elements, we are doing our students a disservice because we aren't giving them the knowledge and the tools and the skills to be able to thrive in the outside world. As I said, the focus is more on churning out these great grades and ticking tick boxing offset reports to look like we're doing the best that we can but if we're not creating young people who can really thrive in the world what is the point and so they often say to me miss we don't learn real life skills you know you're not teaching us real things and I've tried to adapt it for my year 12 so on our tutor program you know I've had sessions about what's a credit card versus what's a debit card how can you start to save from this age you know investing in yourself a savings account all of the things and the knowledge that they need right now, I'm trying to give to them. But again, that's the provision that I'm providing in my institution. That is not on a national level um, at the moment. And so students aren't leaving schools, I think, with the skills that they really, really need. And so something definitely has to change at some point. Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with that real life skills aspect as well, because you're not taught that. We're taught um, it's just it's standardized testing. And I guess it's sort of like trying to find right. a balance between getting the grades you need to get, but also setting up the students for life, like real life as well, teaching them what a mortgage is and credit card, debit card, et cetera, how to manage their finances. These are things that they're going to need to know very soon after they finish school. Because a lot of students finish right. school, they have no idea. I didn't have any idea. You you get um, a lump sum of money, student student loan, and then just go and blow it. And then, you know, and it's, it's, not, it's not learning some of these like vital life skills that you should learn. Um, or maybe these schools probably should be teaching us. Um, right. Do you do you have that level of flexibility with your your with you your teaching your with year twelve? Kind of yeah, with year twelve, I do because obviously I'm head of year, so we plan the tutor times and the tutor programs. Sixth form is way more flexible. The young gear groups they follow um, a personal development program which is a little bit separate to what we do in sixth form so I am lucky as a head of year to have that flexibility um, but if I wasn't ahead of year I wouldn't have had that flexibility to be able to do so so I can deliver pretty much what I want um, in the remit of making sure that it kind of follows um, PSHE standards um, across the UK but there is a lot of flexibility to deliver what we want to to kind of tailor it to the needs of our students and the context of them I'm really about context so I think if you are teaching in a school 
in South London, in Brixton. So, for example, I don't know if you heard about Child Q. Yeah, yeah. With Child Q, I felt like if your school is based in anywhere in London, anywhere outside of London, that should have been something that your staff should have read. They should have read the report on staff on Child Q, and you should have sat down and had some type of conversation with your staff members about what not to do in that scenario. Many schools ignored it and brushed over it including my own, you know, including my own school. It didn't seem like an issue that could knock on our doorstep. But I think it's really important that context is brought into play when we're delivering things to our students. If our students are living in lower socioeconomic backgrounds where there's not a lot of generational wealth or there's not a lot of wealth at all, let's give them the tools to kind of overcome those historical battles that they face within their own families like let's give them the ability to make changes for themselves going forward in the future let's not repeat the cycles so when schools ignore context I don't think things can ever work out yeah yeah do you know have you heard of Ken Robinson also Ken Robinson yeah 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 so I like his views on things and just to so what he talks about is that he says that he feels the education system is stifling or killing off a lot of children's creativity. So we come into schools very creative and then through mm-hmm. a lot of standardized testing and then comprehension and being told what to do, et cetera, et cetera, that creativity is sort of kicked out of us over time and over years. And he calls for like less standardized testing and a more mm-hmm. personalized approach to a curriculum as well. Um, Cause we all learn differently. Some learn better in big groups, some better in small groups, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of thing. Uh, what do you yeah. think have you do what do you feel about his views on especially on the standardized testing side of things um now with testing standardized testing i think is too much of it i think there's way too much of it but i do agree with exams and i know some people might come for me i'm um, saying we shouldn't have exams but i think exams are really important for students um one because it builds something in them called universalistic standards now when you go out into the world you're we're all kind of judged on the same remit in some elements sometimes of course we've got different backgrounds different ethnicities genders whatever but in some aspects we're judged on the same type of test so when we go to university we all sit and the test we have a dissertation that we write etc i do think we have to get our students used to sitting standardized testing however i do think it's too much and I think coming out of the pandemic we had the opportunity to really change the way that we assess students and I think we really missed that opportunity um I mean I've got year 13 students about to sit a level exams they've never sat an exam they never did year 11 exams they got predicted grades year 12 they had mock examinations and now year 13 high stake exams that are going to determine their future I think need to be looked at so you're telling me if a child is predicted an A star and they go into an exam have a panic attack and they leave with a C that should now determine the trajectory of what university they go to um what kind of degree they leave with and that judgment should be placed on them for the rest of their life I don't think that that should be something that determines your whole future so a balance of testing and other assessments but we're not looking at a child holistically we're looking at them on one um, afternoon in the month of May where they sat an exam and that's going to determine their future and that's they, that's what they have to carry with them for the rest of their life. My students mm-hmm. often don't realise, you know, even as adults, we still put down our GCSE maths. We still put down what we got in particular A-level subjects. These are essentially our accolades. These are the things that we've worked for. The government will tell you, if you don't have GCSE maths, well, you can't be successful. And so 
we're constantly churning out these ideas to our students. And I think it's important to recognize they should be judged on something different, not just standardized testing. Cool. Sounds good. I hear you. All right. Let's talk Black Teachers Connect. So when did you found Black Teachers Connect and what's the some of the main priorities behind the organization right now? So June 2018, we're about to turn four years old next month, which is incredible. Um, so I founded it in 2018 when I started training to teach. Initially, just before I kind of went into training to teach, I was like, you know, I need a black teacher that I can talk to and ask them about their experience, any advice when I'm applying. And I only knew one other black teacher and that was Kanaya because she went to um, my sick form. And so I reached out to her, but then I just thought, who else can I speak to? I don't know any other black teachers. Where are these people? And so curiosity killed the cat. And I started Googling, you know, how many black teachers are there in the UK? I started looking at government statistics. And at that point, when I was looking, it was about 2%. So 2% of the teachers in the UK are from a black African and black Caribbean background. And I was actually shocked. But then I don't know why I was, because then when I look back at my schooling, I never really had that many black teachers. Um, but I don't think that it's something that I really digested. It's not something that we look around and we question. Only until we get to a particular age do we start to reflect back on that journey. When I started to train to teach, you know, I walked into that lecture room first day, walked into UCL. No, where are the black people? It felt like university over again. Like it was, it was like, wow. So where are, where are they? Um, you've got, you know, teachers coming down from small towns in England, wherever they are, the north of England, coming to London to teach because, you know, London is this multicultural, diverse hub of people. It's this melting pot that people love to call it. But where are the black teachers? They're nowhere to be found. And I thought to myself, well, if I can come into this, this room, I can feel isolated. I can ask, question myself, is this really for me? Is this really the journey I should be on? I wonder how many other black teachers feel just like me. And are there any networks at the moment for black teachers? There were not. There were no networks for Black teachers when I started Black Teachers Connect. There are a few now, but there were none. And so I said, let me create a space for Black teachers to come together and to network with one another and to support one another to ensure that we stay here. And our main aims are focused around two key things, or about three, recruitment, retention and development. So recruiting black teachers into the profession, retaining the ones that we already have. So how can we keep people here? What is happening in the education system that's pushing black teachers out and what can we do to keep them here? Um, and development, how can we create the best teachers ever? So what can we do to create them to be the best in regards to teaching, learning, pedagogy, behavior, curriculum, assessment? Um, just developing them to be the best of the best. And so those are our three key focuses. Um, COVID came and knocked us down a little bit. We've got quite a big event planned for the end of the year. Um, but we've really just helped supporting people. And right now we've got our mentorship scheme, which draws to a close in July. In September, that was our first one. So we've got Black senior leaders and head teachers mentoring early career black teachers in their profession and supporting them as they start this journey of teaching. I mean, it's been really successful, but we need more of it. 
um, and it's hard to do this as one network. You know, we can only reach out to so many teachers, but we want to see more of it um, throughout the UK and throughout the world. But those are the main aims of Black Teachers Connect. Yeah, and we definitely need more of it. That level of underrepresentation is nuts. When you said when you started, it was what, 2% of um, teachers yeah. were Black? Which and is... we're at about 2.5 at the moment. So 2.5, that's that's nowhere near representative of what the general population demographic is. Yeah. Nowhere near. So that's nuts. And it's interesting as well because it feels like across a number of different industries, I talk to people from different industries for this podcast and where I work, so I work in finance now as well. And across a number yeah. of different industries, um, there's an underrepresentation of black people, underrepresent yeah, of black people in these industries. Um which is nuts. And they all seem to have very similar issues now when you talk about it, because a couple of your aims were to recruit and to retain. In finance, I know that's definitely an issue. First of all, recruitment, underrepresentation, and especially underrepresentation at senior levels as well, because you can recruit a lot of people at junior level, but then as you go up the pyramid, it just gets less and less and less diverse. Um, And then retention, turnover of black staff in finance, and of course other industries that people I talk to is very high. You know, um, so there's two issues there. People aren't wanting, or maybe they're not, it's not that they're not wanting, but for whatever reason, they're not getting into a lot of these these key industries. And second of all, when they're in it, they're leaving. They're not staying as yeah. long as their counterparts for whatever reason. Uh, in yeah. your experience, do you feel, have you heard anything like, what do you feel like is stopping, first of all, children from wanting to become teachers and also what's causing that turnover as well of these black teachers in the, prof- in the profession? I would say it's a cycle because a lot of black students go into school, they have a negative experience of schooling and they literally say, why would I go back into being a teacher? Uh, Why would I do that? My students see me and they think that I'm earning 10 pounds a day. They don't respect the profession. I know it sounds really bad. They don't respect the profession at all, at all all they think that me being a teacher is like uh that was a last resort and miss just had to do it they don't see it as a respected profession when i tell them that a lot of teachers will fall into a middle class band they'll be like what no miss the teacher is no 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 they do not respect the profession and it's a difficult one for me because sometimes i look at the profession and i say to myself well how can they respect the profession when the way teachers are treated the way they are, the children can see this. They can see this. You know, I'm ahead of year. I'm teaching quite a lot. My student came to me the other day to look for my year 12. She said, Miss, how do you do this? How can you, how can you do this? And I think seeing how much teachers are doing, they say to themselves, I would never do that. I would never mark books. I would never want to sit down until 7.30 to talk to parents. I would never want to um, come in and plan lessons and deal with behaviour issues, etc, etc. And I think for the students, they see these things and they think, actually, I'm not going to bother. And especially, I think, for a lot of our young um, Black males, they have a negative experience of schooling and they will never come back into teaching because for them it's like why would I go back to something because especially they can't see themselves in they never had a black male teacher so why would they come back into this profession where they don't see anyone who represents themselves so it's definitely a cycle and I think for black teachers at the moment I would say even myself as I keep saying to you you go online people are flying out to Dubai in April 
you're marking mm. books at school. You know, people are leaving university, graduate schemes, 60, 70, 80K a year. You're still here working at school and you're not really touching that level yet. And you think to yourself, hmm, there's other opportunities out there because sometimes we don't want to invest just into our own communities. But I think it's about what schools can invest into their teachers. I 100% think teachers need more pay, better conditions. That's 100% an issue at the moment. But for our black teachers, they need focused and tailored leadership development. How are we going to propel our black teachers forward? You know, the lack of representation as you said, not only at that teacher level, but at that middle leadership and senior leadership level is abysmal. But schools have to be open to make those changes because our students need to see that. If my students don't see a black woman as an SLT member, the black girls can't see themselves doing that. So that's not going to be something they aspire to. But if they can see someone making money from um doing fashion and Instagram and they can see that person really um, going far, they might aspire to that instead rather than miss who's just um, a teacher. And that's how they label it as. Even though me, I think their profession is amazing, there are reasons why Black people specifically are saying no and they're walking away. There's a whole host of reasons. Yeah, yeah, definitely a whole host of reasons. It must be, because otherwise they would it would be representative of what the population is. Mm. And I, when you talk about the cycle, that definitely resonates as well, actually, because you've got a number of black students like yourself when you're growing up who've had negative experiences. And from there, you're like, I don't want to go back. I'm done with school. I'm not going back in any way, right. shape or form afterwards. So you've got a group of people like that who are not going to become a teacher. On top of that, the lack of representation side of things as well, because like you spoke about, that lack of very visible and visual representation if you don't see it, oftentimes you don't even believe it or you don't see it as a viable career option. But you can see right. us, you can see people who look like you and come from areas like you on Insta and social media, et cetera, et cetera. Like you spoke about at the start, children now have a whole host of different pressures compared to what it was like not even that long ago, 10 years ago, or however long ago, you know, we were in school. It's very different. Kids are looking at people on social media and things like that and thinking these guys are winning in life. They're out here, they're in Dubai they're here they're there they're traveling right. they're, they're winning and then I got miss here who's marking papers until seven o'clock and then got parents shouting at her blah 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 and you're like what life do I want to live like mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying exactly. you know like, and then it's, it's all of that you know I think that p- plays into it as well a number of different things but I think that lack of representation definitely as well I think a lot of students maybe yeah because teachers you know in teachers are interactive like hundreds or thousands of students throughout their career but te- yeah. students are only going to interact with a handful no, only a few teachers in it and you're going to remember right. those experiences you're going to remember those bad experiences and you're going to remember your good experiences when I look back I can remember two teachers in particular who were really really good like really mm. really good and one's a black woman a Miss Branch and one was an Asian man a Mr. Parvis okay. and the Asian man I didn't even have like a personal experience with him like that but I remember he came to my school quite late like I was probably like yeah 10 or something when he came mm-hmm. but he came yeah with like he wanted to change everything like so when when he came in we used to walk around school with like our ties all short and fat and that kind of thing mm-hmm. he used to stop us and like our dad like he's our dad and like drop mm-hmm. our tie properly for us and that on the mm-hmm. playground dress us properly for not wearing our, our blazers properly and that yeah. kind of thing he would be like in class he used to always he'll teach us but he was always going off on the tangents and talking about life and literally giving us life lessons. And back then, I wouldn't appreciate it. Looking back now, I'm like, 
yeah, he was dropping gems. <laughs> he was telling yeah. us, he was telling us the realness. But he he really cared about us in a way that other students, other teachers, I didn't feel like other teachers did. And it's not like I had a proper personal relationship with him like that, but I could see he cared, you know. Mm -hmm. Then I got my other teacher, the black woman, and she definitely cared. She knew my whole family, like, and she was like wow. proper good with all of us. Um, so I got those two very good experiences. Then I've got a bunch of very bad experiences as well from mm. school. Um, and these experiences stay with the student. And I feel that if you've got teachers who maybe it's difficult, I get it. Like, it's, like you're saying, you only just come from work and you've hopped onto the school, but it's difficult. It's long hours. It's a lot of planning outside of school and that kind of thing. And it can get very difficult if you're doing it over and over again and et cetera, et cetera. But maybe it's one of them ones where if teachers, that was really drummed into teachers, how much of an impact they have on these students' lives. Students aren't going to interact with that many teachers. They're going to remember this experience in a good or a bad yeah. way. Then maybe then you might have some more black students who would have better experiences in school. And then later on, look yeah. forward and be like, you know what? Maybe being a teacher isn't so bad. I'll become a teacher. I had a really good teacher. Just teach, you know what I'm saying? Stuff like that. I mm. think it's really important, you know, um, to keep that in mind and all of that. But yeah, that's really interesting. And let's talk about the the child curio. So you mentioned that a bit earlier on. So I've got these stats here. Let me read it. So 5,000, I read it word for word, yeah. 5,279 children were strip searched in the last three years. Yeah, this mm -hmm. is 75% um, of these children were from ethnically diverse backgrounds. And this is only yeah. children that have been arrested. So not including children as like people like child Q in schools like that. Mm -hmm. That's when I heard that year, I was first all shocked as a lot of people were. I didn't know because I was like, what in a school? Like, you know, my thing was like, okay, we know the police are can be wayward and they do whatever, but in a school, like for me, that was so crazy to hear a story like that. Um, and it's just one example of one of a few examples of how black children are not protected, you know, in our classrooms. That's yeah. that she should have been protected, that should never have been allowed to happen. By the teachers of all people who are there to protect their student their students um yeah in what ways other than that what in what ways do you feel like black children are not being protected by the schools and our teachers and do you feel like the teachers and schools are doing enough to protect black students i think it's a difficult one i definitely think you've got schools that are providing that provision for their black students and are very much focused on supporting them but i definitely think you've got schools that miss the mark now with child q what i find really interesting is that a teacher someone who is in a position of protecting um, a child because every teacher has to adhere to professional and personal conduct and so our initial things is that you know we are there to safeguard the children if anything that is one of the main things that we do now if one of my students smells like cannabis the last thing I am going to do is to walk to my office pick up the phone and dial 999 for a teacher to have that mindset there is something incredibly wrong going on in terms of how they are feeling in that school setting our black children are often the ones who become victimized the most in this education system, be it through permanent exclusion, fixed term exclusion, consistent isolation. And so I'm really quite against isolation. I don't really understand how it works for a child. But our black girls are dealing with the adultification of themselves. And so black 
girls are often perceived as grown women. They are not perceived as young girls who can live a childhood life. And that is the case with Child Q. To strip search a young girl, as in she is on her menstrual cycle, and we know that for young girls, that's a very difficult period of their life, to strip search her, have her pull down her pants, to strip search her, make her bend over and think that that is okay, that makes no sense to me. But it shows the value that schools place on black children, which is very, very little. Now, this is historical. This has been going on for years. It's been, it's nonstop. It's been going on for years. What we see now is that this has been very hidden because the child Q incident took place in 2020. And mm. so we only heard about it, what, this year, 2022. So it took two years for that to come to light. What else has been historical that has happened four years ago, five years ago, six years ago, that we do not know about that's happened already? And so this is a historical issue. It's nothing new that schools need to tackle. But what you will find is that schools are going to jump on the bandwagon of this report that's come out, they're going to say, all right, we need to do something to protect our black children, to protect the black staff. But I'm telling you, in four to five months, and probably already, no one's talking about child Q. No one's talking about getting justice for child Q. Nobody cares anymore. That was a hot topic for two weeks. But actually, for child Q, that's going to be her life. That's going to be the trajectory of her life. It's the same way we get hyped up around these exclusions over young black boys. Um, we talk about it for about a week in the media, and then it dips out, it dies down. But again, these things are historical. They continue to happen. The perception that we have of young black people, I often think, unfortunately, is propelled by the media. So I'll never forget at my old school that I worked at, I had a teacher who'd come from Canada to teach. And this is why, I'm sorry, it sounds really bad. I'm so against um, teachers coming from like really upper class, middle class backgrounds and coming down to South, North, East London to teach in some of the most deprived areas when they don't understand the issues our children are dealing with. Yeah. One of those teachers said to me, oh, you know, the students remind me of that that show, Top Boy. Have you watched that show? And this Bro. was in what? This would have been 2019. So that would have been the old series of kind of Top Boy um, when he said that to me. And I said to myself, what? He said to me, yeah, they just seem so bitter and angry um, all the time, like those boys that are on that show. And I thought, well, if this is the perception you have of a child, and that's the image you have, if you go into a classroom and that child displays any type of aggressive behavior, any type of um, action or movement, or they talk any type of way, you're going to label them as dangerous. You're going to label them as a threat. And so what you're going to do is you're going to try and tackle that threat. I had that with a teacher I used to work with. One of our year 11 boys, this was at my old school, I work at girls school now, he was sky high tall. And, you know, a lot of black boys are, you know, labeled as being these kind of aggressive males, really dominant, etc. You know, I think he held the door open for her and she turned around until she felt uncomfortable because she felt like he was trying to um, do something to her. He held the door open for her. Miss, here you go. You can walk through. She, She turned around and made a complaint until she felt uncomfortable. Now... This is what I'm talking about when we're saying, how are we perceiving our black children? A lot of teachers are getting their 
perceptions from TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, what we see of our black children, what the media perpetuates. What they don't see is that a black child is trying to work incredibly hard to get themselves out of the situation that they're in now. And I don't think you need to separate the child from their background to make them to be an amazing person. That's something you invest into and you let them see the value within that. But unfortunately, um, the education system is at a turning point. But whether things are actually done about it, outside of the remit of what I can do and my team can do, that's the issue. Because there are Black children who are in schools in the north of England, and they're the only ones. And they're being um, labelled every single day. And they've got nobody to help them or nobody to support them because they don't have a Black teacher in their school. And they become, you know, the target for for anything. So it's... Mm it's a really sad one yeah yeah definitely yeah when you talk about the teachers coming from middle class or wherever backgrounds coming to teach in like you know very diverse areas in london or wherever whatever major city i've never thought about that before but when you talk about it it makes perfect sense because you're so Mm -hmm. far removed from any of the issues in that community and what these children go through never even really been exposed to any kind of black people before you don't know um but now you're here and you're essentially going to play like a very major pivotal role in where these students were in their life, but you don't know anything about them. Right. You know, that is, it's nuts. It doesn't even make sense when you think about it. Um, and maybe well, it perhaps- makes sense. Monetary money, money wise, it makes sense. So as a teacher, you get paid more when you work in London. If you work outside of London, you're on a different pay scale. So many of the teachers who have grown up in the north of England, they come to London because of money. And I wish that would have been the a thing that they admit. It's not to help support the students. You know, they're not here to help these young people who are dealing with so much. They're here because the pay scale is higher um, and that needs to change. Um, You know, keep the pay scales the same for everyone because we need to stop bringing people here who haven't got the incentive to want to teach for a real and true reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that London waiting for sure. Definitely. Like maybe it should be something like if you're going to come down and teach, if you're not from the area, maybe you should come down, I don't know, immerse yourself in the community in some way, shape or form, first of all, and learn. Maybe like right. do youth work or something like you spoke about, you've done something like that. So at least you learn a bit more about the community first before you go and step into a teaching role because it, it, it obviously right. makes sense. You know, you're, you're stepping into a community you know nothing about, but you're teaching them. Um, it's a bit nuts. And we talk about the media perception as well, about that's how like, people perceive these black children. I, I got a story. Mm. So my brother, he went to some years ago, he went to Cornwall on a school trip. Um, mm-hmm. yeah school children went to Cornwall for something and when they went there so the kids there had never ever seen a black person but they were scared of my brother and his friends they were like shook shook up of my brother and his friends my brother isn't even like that but they were scared of him then later on when they all got comfortable they were like oh yeah you know we thought you guys were going to be in gangs or something like that blah 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 why the hell would you think that like you know what I'm saying why is that the first thing that comes into your head you've never even interacted with a black person mm-hmm. so where are you getting that information from what have you seen? What have you heard? What's making you think of that? Like, um, and it boils down to what well, it must be media representation because that's the only exposure you get to black people. Um, and that was definitely one of my driving forces behind a thousand voices as well because that's ridiculous that someone would yeah. think of that automatically without even knowing the person. That's the first thing that comes to your head. Oh yeah, this person must be in a gang and they're gonna hurt me or do whatever, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, which is not saying. On the, the representation side of things as well, so with you know, Child Q, like you said, it's sort of like flavor of the month now. And then we're going to move on a month or two. No one's going to talk about it anymore. 
but child Q is still going to be going through everything she's going through. I read um, online that she's had to go and do some therapy or some counseling or something like that, mm-hmm. um, which is nuts. You know, she's a young girl. She shouldn't have, shouldn't have to go for anything like that. On the flavor of the month thing as well, Black Lives Matter, which you spoke about earlier as well. That was definitely flavor of the month across a number of different industries. And with a lot of people yeah. I've spoken with, they were like, when that was at its height after George Floyd's murder, George Floyd's murder, they were getting, whether if they're running their own business, they're getting loads of organizations reaching out to them, like, let's partner, let's do something like, right. like that. Um, some people, where they might be working in the corporate space and all of a sudden now they're getting loads of people reaching out to them, like to come and mm-hmm. talk about this, come and talk about that. And then not long after, it wasn't even that long, like from what I hear from people, just a couple of months, a few months, just stopped asking it, just died down. Like all the interest died down proper. Very performative. People that had businesses and that, black-owned businesses that were selling products or whatever, were getting crazy loads of orders. And then a couple of months mm-hmm. down, just back down to normal levels. And it's like, well, that, that kind of performative, you feel bad, okay, let's talk to them, you know, flavor of the month, all right, cool. Now we're going to move on. But black people and whoever has been affected by that are still going to be affected by that. Black people are still going to be going through whatever they're going through. Mm-hmm. All the things you're talking about for the month or two months is still affecting black people up until today. And mm. with you, in your, uh, in the schools in particular, has race been, well, during that period of time, actually, was race a topic of discussion? And is it something that you still bring into the classroom? Is it something you can bring into the classroom to talk to children about? So at my current school, in regards to staff, we don't talk about race, but that's about to change at some point, I hope. Um, my old school that I was at during that during the first wave of the pandemic, um, we definitely did an assembly on Black Lives Matter and tried to kind of raise the awareness to the students. But it is a very tick box, you know, element. You know, Ofsted look at diversity and they look at what you're doing to promote the background of students. So a lot of schools are doing this to meet the requirements of Ofsted, nothing more. Um, now, in terms of kind of talking about race, etc., I think some schools find it really difficult to talk about, but I think it's really important. So in my classroom, obviously, because I teach sociology, I'm at an advantage that I can talk about race. So with my students, we look at the concept of meritocracy, um, which is a functionalist concept. And so it's this idea that if you um, come from any background, regardless of what you do, what you look like, all of your achievements will be based on your hard work and nothing else and that is a functionist perspective and I always say to my students do we believe in this so I always tell them to look at me and I say describe me and so I say what race am I and sometimes they're so afraid to say miss you're black they're so scared to say miss is a black woman and then I'll say to them why are you afraid to say that I'm a black woman I am that's not racist I'm black you know they're so afraid to you know tread foot into any kind of racial conversation and I think it's about giving our students the racial literacy to have the conversations about the different backgrounds that people in the classroom come from and where I come from and I always say to them do you think me as a black working class woman will have the same opportunities as a white middle class woman and they always say no because they understand what that dynamic looks like they they understand that that comes with different opportunities but having that discourse with them can sometimes be quite difficult because I think the students are quite afraid to have these conversations and I think again it links to some of the things they see on the media when people 
people say particular things and how they're perceived. Um, I think it's an element of fear about getting things wrong or saying the wrong thing. I mean, I had a student who we were talking about ethnic minority pupils and educational achievement. And she said, um, so, you know, colored pupils. And I said, ah, pause. Mm -hmm. pause 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 I had to pause the class I said everyone pay attention we don't use that term we don't call people colored okay I said so if you want to say people of color ethnic minorities okay that's fine but we do not use the term colored but it's about being able to hone in on that issue pull her up and correct her some teachers will brush over that they will hear that and they will say nothing. And that child leaves school with the perception that actually I can call my university friend coloured. Oh, yeah, Rhea's that coloured girl that lives in the halls down there. And then that perpetuates another issue because who are they teaching that to? Their own children. And so it doesn't stop. And so I think I can have the conversations about race in my classroom. One, because I'm comfortable to do so, because I'm thankful that I have the platforms that I do and I have the education that I do. But for some teachers, they don't. But then it's for the school to say, how do we invest into our staff and our students to feel like they can be comfortable to talk about these things? And as you said, the flavor of the month was I was getting emails left, right and center from schools. Can you deliver this for us? Can you do this for us? But then when you come back and you say, absolutely fine, this is the cost. Mm. The world the world comes to a silence because we are supposed to be martyrs. You know, we're supposed to do this work for free. We're supposed to sit down and talk to 200 members of your staff about racial issues and you want that done for free. You want a whole day CPD done for free. Schools are not willing to invest. They want that done for free. No speaker that I wanted to come into my school for Black History Month was and I think my school maybe had an issue about investing into those things. I don't know if there was a budget, but I don't think you should ask people to speak in the month of Black History Month for free. I don't think you should ever ask them to speak for free. But I think it's even more of an insult that schools are not willing to invest in these issues. But you're willing to pay someone external to come in and deliver a workshop about how to revise or how to prepare for uni. Uh, what about a life skill about how to have conversations about race? That's important. It yeah, works. yeah, yeah. It's like putting your money where your mouth is, and it sort of shows you know, where your priorities are because you're going to allocate and budget for whatever's important, you know. And if you're willing to pay for other people to come and talk about other topics, but not this, and you're only happy to do this if it's free and convenient and easy, you know, it just comes across comes across as performative. Um, yeah. You know what I'm saying? And that's you know a lot of organisations with the black squares, everyone was doing that kind of thing. It's all performative stuff, yeah. but. But like, it's not like, what does your internal structure look like? Are you hiring black stuff? Like, even right. if you ain't got budget to, to you know, pay for speakers or whatever, cool. What else are you tangibly doing? Because we all need to see black squares all over Instagram. Like, we need, to, you know, are you hiring black stuff? Are you actively not just talking about it? Actively working on making senior levels within your organization more diverse? Things like that, you right. know, like what are you tangibly doing, not just posting and doing performative stuff because you know, don't don't need none of that, you know. Um, yeah, exactly. Definitely. Um, so uh, oh yeah, so oh, this is what I was gonna say. So you know, when when I told my wife I was gonna talk to you, yeah, she was telling me about okay. you know um, explaining to me what labeling theory was. Is that are you familiar with the concept? Okay. You probably are, right? Yeah, we we teach it in sociology, yeah. Yeah, I'd never heard of it, but Oh wow! Yeah, I've never, I've never heard of it. No sociology background, mm -hmm. but I always used to say, I always say that 
I'm a solemn, solemn believer that people live up to whatever you tell them. So if you keep mm-hmm. telling students that they're bad, they're bad, they're bad, they're going to believe that and internalize it. You keep telling someone right. they don't know anything, they're stupid, they're this, they're that, they're going to believe it. It isn't necessarily the case. I just feel like people live up to the labels you give them, what you tell them. So when I was reading about labeling, right. theory, I was like, oh, rah. Yeah, that's, that's what I've been saying. Like, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And something I believe in anyways. Um, and what do you, do you feel like labeling theory has, uh, has a role to play in some of the issues that students face? So let's talk about maybe exclusions and um, maybe students that aren't li- living up to their potential, like academic and things like that. Do you feel like labeling theory has a, plays a role in that kind of thing? I mean, absolutely. I think on the subconscious and on the very conscious level, teachers do label their students and their labels can work two ways and Becca talks about something called the ideal pupil and so when students fail to conform or fit into this concept of what the ideal pupil is someone who arrives on time to lesson is diligent does the work that they're supposed to do um, contributes well to the lesson when a student either falls outside of that remit teachers often apply negative labels to them and so we can see a student could be labeled as lazy or talkative or disrespectful or aggressive um, or just someone who just doesn't really care and so that feeds into the way the teacher begins to treat that child and so you hear it all the time in staff room rhetoric unfortunately um, and no teacher can deny that you know teachers will be like oh I've got Daniel period three that boy doesn't do any work or you know you know you know that's how teachers talk like let's be honest you know we we always have that one student that you know we might be like oh they might not be ready to do anything today or they might not really be on it or and you know some teachers really label a student but sometimes what happens is the way the teacher treats that child in the lesson becomes very different to how they treat other students so constantly picking on that child and you know you, you in school you probably had it you know the child who was turned around and said but miss why are you always saying it's me talking yeah, yeah. It's they're talking as well and so you know that child constantly feels like they're targeted or they're picked on and so do you know what if Daniel is constantly being told you know stop talking Daniel's just gonna talk because you think I'm talking anyway so let me just talk and live up to the label and so then what happens is Daniel sent out He's sent to the exclusion room um, and that becomes a cycle. Um, And so he lives up to that cycle every day, something we call the self-fulfilling prophecy. And so he fulfills the prophecy that his teacher has passed down to. And unfortunately, we see that trickle happening. And then, then those internal exclusions turn to external exclusions. And then that external exclusion turns into permanent. He goes on to go to a pupil referral unit where some students, unfortunately, live up to even worse labels because being in a prue some students feel as though they're labeled as the worst of the worst and now if you've labeled me as the worst of the worst society's outcast that is what I will live up to I've not got anything to to live for so I'm just going to mess around and I'm not going to bother with my schoolwork and so we see that cycle happening with the self-fulfilling prophecy but some students choose to reject that label and sometimes you can see that with students but Is it as common as the self-fulfilling prophecy? It's not. But some students, I think, depending on the support they get at home, um, parents investing um, in both cultural capital um, of that child, 
they can definitely negate that prophecy. They can reject it. But unfortunately, we see the self-fulfilling prophecy happening at the moment with a lot of exclusions. And, you know, don't get it twisted. Exclusions don't just start in secondary school. They start in primary school. Um, and people don't believe this, but a lot of primary school children are permanently excluded, um, <laughs> believe it or not. And I think people are like, what? And it's like, yes, a lot of primary school children are permanently excluded. They go to Prus. There are Prus. For primary school kids, I didn't yes. even know that. Yes, there are proofs for primary age students. They get excluded too, permanently excluded. This starts from a very young age, but a lot of people don't talk about it. Um, but it's definitely dangerous because an exclusion in primary school that causes a very difficult childhood because you are perceived negatively from the moment you're excluded from pri um, primary school, even going to secondary school is hard. A child is labeled in a particular way. Um, so it's very, very difficult. It's something that needs to be tackled. Yeah, I, I didn't know there were proofs for primary school kids. That's nuts. i got a family member that works a lot with proofs and that kind of thing. He tells me that some of them are okay. Some of them, in his words, are crazy. Like, and it's just, yeah. it's, it's anarchy and that kind of thing. And when we talk about labeling theory as well, it's like you've labeled a child in a certain way. They've been excluded from school. So now they really internalize it and they believe it. And they've been sent to a mm -hmm. referral unit. You already have a conception of what a referral a people referral unit is anyways. You're going to go there and, you know, just maybe live up to whatever the title, wherever you believe it, you believe you are and that kind of thing. And, um, yeah. you know, it just it doesn't really seem, I mean, I don't have much experience in that area, but it doesn't seem like it's a very good way, you know, of setting up our children for the future as well. It's not, it's, I don't really see that really... Um, I don't think it's the best way you know, to set up our children for the future because they are the future as well. They're the ones who, are, who should be um, in positions of leadership and running different organizations and whatever and pillars in our communities. But then we're shipping off to Peru's and kicking them out of schools and that kind of thing. And then, but we expect them to contribute to society afterwards. Um, there's a right. disconnect because you've they've sort of been like taken out of um, taken out of you know what you call normal society. Like you got some people. Right. Um, you probably come across people like this as well and from no fault of their own but they've been so marginalized from society that they've been kicked out of school they have they yeah they've been kicked out of school maybe they've been in and out of whatever um in the past and that and when you talk to them now when they're in their 20s or older you talk to them and it's like they have in a way it's like they have such a limited range of social skills yeah where they don't mm -hmm. talk the same as like the average person will talk they don't interact the same as how the average person would interact they don't act the same but it's because you've been so marginalized now they get to a certain yeah. age now where it's going to be so difficult to integrate some of that into normal society they've lived a complete different life to everyone very very different life like very far removed from the average person and then we want to kick that person even more when they're down and then you know you know what's the word like label and say they're this they're that blah, blah blah but not talk about the role in which these institutions have played into making them like that or to setting them up in that kind of way um when we talk about the exclusion side of things what do you feel about them and also on that as well how do you feel that teachers if you don't believe in exclusions how do you feel teachers should deal with students who are a bit more difficult in classes now, I do believe in exclusions and, you know, they can people can come for me for that, but I do. Um, I do believe a child can be given 
so many chances to the point where they're disrupting the culture of a school and the expectations of a school that sometimes they have got to go. And I think that should be at the very end of all interventions being tried. Now, what some schools do is they consistently fixed um, term exclude a child over and over again. And so what that means is you might be excluded for three days, for example, and then you make your return back to school and you're reintegrated and then something happens again and fixed term exclusion. And then what it does is they're racking up enough evidence to say, all right, you've got to go. What interventions are being made for that child? A round table talk should happen with that child's teachers. What is the child doing in my lesson and what are they doing in your lesson? Because I've got students who come to my lesson and they are well behaved one of my students that I took on when she was in year 10 I'll never forget one of the teachers came up to me she said you don't want her trust me she's gonna make your life a living hell when I say that girl is my star student my star student she has never done me wrong in my lesson she is amazing so what I'm saying is what is happening in all of the classrooms with that particular child what interventions are we making for that particular child has a teacher that may be struggling with that child gone to shadow or gone to observe that child in another teacher's lesson and saw how that child was dealing with that have you actually looked at the teachers themselves do teachers have unconscious bias? Do you think they have an unconscious perception against this child? Do you think you need to make interventions with the teachers themselves? Have you engaged the parents? And that's something that, you know, I'm really passionate about as well. And I think for our Black parents specifically, we do not always have the cultural capital, the social capital, economic capital to know how to navigate this education system. We don't know how to write the letters. We don't know how to book the parent-teacher meetings. We don't know how to go in and actually sit down and advocate for our child. Unfortunately, some of the things I see nowadays are arguing for our child. We're going in and we're berating and we're arguing with teachers, but we need to go down and sit down logically and have a conversation to really get the best provision for our child. Are you you engaging the parents are you engaging the wider family what are you doing within that school to make sure the child feels heard are you listening to what that child is saying to you if a child says I feel like I'm being picked on are you taking that seriously or are you rolling your eyes and saying oh here we go again here we go again you know they're woe is me look at this child creating themselves to be the victim or are you listening and you know if all of that has been tried and tested and you know the child still has not invested in the school yes sometimes you have to say bye and I know that sounds really bad but you know what can you do at some point when everything has been tried and tested what can you do but a lot of schools don't do what they're supposed to do they just exclude and they they want to make it somebody else's problem and that's not right Definitely not right. They've given up way too easy. Cool. All right. So as we prepare to round up before we go into quick fire questions, I'm going to end up on a bit of a lighter note. Looking back at your career so far, what achievement are you most proud of? Um, I think breaking into middle leadership before I'm 25. So I turn off. Oh, well, my students hear this. Yeah, I'm 25 <laughs> next week, Monday. So oh, I wow. turn 25 Congrats. next week. Um, and I think breaking into middle leadership at such a young age was really quite big for me. Now, I'm not saying that needs to be an aim for every teacher, but for me, I've managed to progress quite quickly. And I think building this network for Black teachers that has just, you know, blown up and been so successful has been a really big achievement of mine. Um and you know, four years we're still a baby, but there's so much to achieve um in the in the time that we 
we've been going. So I can't wait to see what the future holds. Great. And an early happy birthday to you as well. Before next thank week. you. Thank you. It's all good. And last question before quick fire questions. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, change and that I've changed the face of education, not just for the students, but also for the teachers. Um, and I just want people to remember me as someone who was an advocate for them. Um, I'm a, I'm the, I'm for the people. Um, I always say that to people. Anytime someone's like, you know, can, can black teachers connect do this? I always say, this is your network. I'm just a facilitator. God just said, Rhea, put this here for the teachers. This is your network. This is for you. I'm just someone who's facilitating this. I'm providing space, but I'm for the people. And that's literally what I want to be remembered um, as, to be honest with you. Yeah. Cool. That's all good. Lovely. All right. Let's go into some quick fire. Yeah? So I've got okay. 10 questions for you. The first okay. few are a bit easier, and they should, I feel anyways, then they get a bit more. Are these knowledge-based questions? No, no, no. Oh, I, was, I was like, is this a test? Like, no, no, am no. I going to fail? Is it a geography question? Because no, I'm going to no, no. Nothing like that. Nothing like that. Okay, okay. But, so, yeah, the first few are a bit easier, I think. I think the last okay. few get a bit more, maybe a bit more techie, but you just shout or whatever comes to your head, didn't it? Okay. Cool. Good to go? Yeah. All right. First question. What's your favourite movie? Oh my goodness. Favorite movie, favorite movie. Uh The Best Man. The Best Man. Is it The Best Man? Something like that. Best Man Wedding. I don't know. I think it's The Best Man. Those films are my favorite. Yeah. Cool. All right. Next. What's your favorite book? Uh my favorite book. Why I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Oh yeah, yeah. I haven't read it, but it's a popular book. It's a really good book. Yeah. All right. Next one. Name a song that you can never get bored of. Um, a song I can never get bored of, Ashanti Foolish. Even though I could be happy, you know, I, I still listen to that song. I rinse it out on a day, too, so that's fine. <laughs> it's a classic song. That's it's acceptable. It's all good. All right. Next one. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Chicken wings, day and night. Chicken wings, fried, baked. I don't care. Chicken wings all day long. Can't go wrong with chicken wings. All right. How do you start your day? um with my alarm snoozing it um waking back up and going to eat breakfast all right next what's the best advice that you ever received uh, don't be a perfectionist great name three people that inspire you um so three people that inspire me um my mentor and my co-director Martha De Costa Sherwood um she's really really supporting me in this journey my mum for always pursuing every single thing that she's wanted to um and at the moment I have quite a few but I would say one of the people that inspire me the most is Liz Pemberton the black nursery manager she is absolutely amazing um, and every time I see her doing work I'm like you know what let me keep on pushing through and pursuing uh, my goals with black teachers connect yeah i've seen her around actually on social she's doing some amazing work teaching nursery yeah. kids not being racist or something like that right yeah anti-racist trainer she's absolutely amazing you should definitely have her on she's amazing great all right let me see next if you were to dedicate the rest of your life to one charitable cause what would you pick one charitable cause yeah. i think ending um educational inequality that's something that i definitely would do Ed ending educational inequality for sure cool all right next what's the kindest thing that someone has ever done for you 
Oh my goodness. The kindest thing someone's ever done for me. Or we could say one kind thing then that someone's done for you. It's hard to put my finger on it, to be honest with you. I would, I'm thinking about my students. So like every time, you know, if they're leaving and they bring me stuff, one of my students, though, I must say in December, she wrote me this amazing card um, about how I've changed her views of sociology and, you know, how I've helped her. And I'm, I've got it in my room and I literally treasure it forever. So that was one of the kindest things ever because it made me recognize what I'm doing um, in the profession. Yeah. That's really cool. That's a really, really good example of how you've like very, very positively changed like one person's life. And she's probably yeah. going to remember that for the rest of her life as well, that student. Yeah. So that's really cool. All right. And last one. What's one thing people don't know about you? <sighs> one thing. I get tired. People think that I am a superwoman and people think that I can juggle everything, but I do get tired as well. I'm also human and I make mistakes. Um, I think sometimes the social media perception can be like, oh my God, people can do so much, but no, I get tired. I get lazy. I procrastinate too. Um, and so, yeah, I am just a human like everybody else. Great. You heard it here, people. Rio's a human like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. That's that. That's everything. Thank you so much for coming on. Really enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank um, you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Before we wrap up, you got anything you want to say in closing? Um, no, you know, if you, we can work with anyone, so you don't just have to be a school because diversity feeds into a lot of different issues. So if you are a teacher or you know a teacher, share our network with them. Um, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, you can join the Facebook group. If you are a teacher, follow us on LinkedIn as well and sign up to our newsletter for any announcements about events, etc. Um, definitely connect with the network. The more support we get, the better. It doesn't just have to be teachers. This is a community connection collective you know our big thing is community so you know just connect with us um the more the merrier great and now just be black teachers connect right on all networks yeah black teachers connect on all social media yeah all right cool that's all good so that's that then thank you very much for coming to the podcast once again Ria. really appreciate it and really enjoyed the conversation today so that's that this is 1000 voices you. that was Ria gibbs of black teachers connect and for now people we're out Okay, that was that. As always, thank you for tuning in. It is very much appreciated. And if you haven't already, please do consider subscribing to us or following us wherever you're listening to this right now. It really does help us in trying to amplify the voices of the people that we speak to. Also, what did you think about this episode? What did you gain from this episode? What were some of your key takeaways from this conversation? As always, it's always great to hear from you guys. So leave a comment, leave a review wherever you're listening to this right now. Let us know what you thought about this. The next podcast episode is going to be dropping next week, Tuesday, as they're released every single Tuesday. So if you'd like to see some previews, a few little snippets from that, then follow us on our social media pages at 1000 Voices UK so that you can keep up to date with that before it comes out. The full YouTube video will drop a few days afterwards as well. So keep an eye out for that. But that's that for now. Thank you for tuning in. This is 1000 Voices. And for now, people, we're out.